0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global Venture Stories. I'm here today with a returning guest, Nadia Ekbal. Nadia welcome back to the podcast thanks for having me so Nadia our our last episode was called what Nadia Ekball thinks about basically everything and uh just when I thought we had covered everything Nadia recently came out with a book working in in public talk about the why behind this book and and what you're trying to achieve with it What, what was sort of the mission behind it
1: yeah, so I mean, it started out innocently enough um, with a desire to just after having spent um, the last few years looking deeply at the world of open source software, um, and just the uh, developers that power it, I I felt like there wasn't a substantive document anywhere that I had found that really reflected what was going on in kind of the modern world of open source today. Um, a lot of any books that really exist on the topic tend to cover what happened maybe like 20 years ago, but I felt like... Uh, the world could a little bit of an update of what was going on. And so it kind of just started out as me wanting to summarize some of my research on open source. But in the process of writing it, I came to, kind of get to more of like the why in in the book, which was uh, realizing that open source really reflected what was happening on the internet at large, uh, where we are going from these hyper public social spaces to these sort of like quieter little corners of the internet where we feel more comfortable expressing ourselves. Um, And I think a lot of that is just a product of of scale of um, so many people are both in open source communities and online communities at large. There are just like so many people that are being crammed into the same room now that um, we're seeing sort of like new types of, uh ways of connecting to each other and talking to each other develop and uh and so i wanted to chronicle that a little bit in the book
0: yeah and let's talk about some of the misconceptions you were trying to de- debunk in the book w- one is that when people um who are not in open source have have this a- idea of open source it's sort of this like happy friendly uh sort of place where everyone is is contributing and it's sort of this like you know kibbutz almost <laughs> like co- co- commune style and everyone is doing e- equal work and and you should just added a lot more nuance to that narrative and, and sometimes saying, oh, actually, it's it's often just just a few people and it's actually better that way for a few reasons. Why don't you sort of un- unpack that a little bit?
1: Yeah. I mean, I wanted to delineate at least that there are different types of styles, I guess, of communities that are forming now. I think like much of our language that we use right now to describe communities, whether they're open source communities or online communities more broadly, um, really just focus on that one model you're talking about, which is kind of like this idealized, equitable, like everyone putting in their share of the work kind of um, thing that we might experience with a small group of friends, like, you know, five friends that are working on a project together, and sometimes maybe not even, not even then. Uh, But like, as you're dealing with communities of, say, millions of people, it's just, I think not really realistic to imagine that it continues to follow this perfect model of everyone kind of chipping in their part. Um, And so I wanted to just sort of like identify, like what are some of those different models that are emerging? And uh, one of which is this uh, stadium style community that you're kind of referring to here, which uh, suggests that there are some open source projects uh, where they are really just centered around one or a couple of maintainers who are doing most of the work and, so their job kind of like changes and the way they think about their relationship to that community changes where there, there are more of these like air traffic controllers that are dealing with an influx of very noisy interactions with a much broader base of casual contributors and casual members and participants. And uh, and I think we should sort of like recognize that some of those like structures exist where a maintainer does have a lot more of a stake in that community than a casual commenter or uh drive-by contributor. And I think we can kind of apply that sort of model to what we're seeing in online communities more broadly where instead of having let's say maybe like a facebook group or uh, uh, like an online message board or something where you can picture like lots of people kind of flitting in and out and, and forming this sort of like collective group thing we're seeing not just that model exist online but also the, these uh, creator-centric communities um, so like you can picture like a newsletter which uh, might have thousands of subscribers but um, all the subscribers are kind of oriented around like one person who's the writer, and that uh, just creates a very different sort of structure with a different set of expectations than the online communities that we're used to.
0: My, my Straussian reading, or one of the Straussian readings of, of the book, because you're very Straussian uh, Nadia, is uh is uh, that it's an anti-communist book? Is is that, is that accurate?
1: Uh, that's a little bold. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I'm not anti really, most things, I guess. Um, But I do want to underline that there are, I do think it's a reaction against some of that early rhetoric that really characterized, like, the early days of the internet, where it was all about this idea of, like, if we just connect more and more people together, then we'll, you know, we're, like, asymptotically approaching this state of, like, so-called like perfect democracy or something like that uh, which I think was sort of an impossible premise to set up and um, and so we are seeing you know as we continue to cram more and more people in the room is that happening it seems like there's actually some sort of like decline in sort of like relative um, freedom of expression what people are comfortable with that is happening and so I kind of wanted to get to the root of that and say okay like at what point does that model actually break down and not necessarily rejecting it but just saying that we can't really sort of blindly cling to that model as something that we're aspiring towards that is sort of impossible to fulfill.
0: Yeah. Noah Smith had this great line. He said, the internet uh, you know, promised to give everyone a voice and it did. And you shouldn't be surprised that when a lot of people got a voice, the first thing they said was, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Sad but true, yeah. So some people have said that that what happened with Gamergate uh, into sort of, in sort of the gaming industry was sort of like a template for what has happened in other industries or what's to come in other industries. And that's why understanding GamerGate is so important. We're gonna to get to game, GamerGate in a bit. Uh, but uh, on, on the open source side, you, you seem to also believe that there are a lot of lessons about how things have played out in open source that are either applying to other industries currently or, or will, will apply in, in the future. Uh, talk a little bit about what, what you think are some of the, the biggest lessons in terms of that we can glean from what's happened in open source to, to other spaces.
1: Sure, I mean, just sort of like, I guess, roughing off of um, the controversy that you're referring to here, I. I, I, again, think there's sort of this impossible premise set up where um, in open source, there's this rhetoric and a sort of, like, common norm that, you know, everyone should be encouraged to participate and contribute. The The beauty of open source is that anyone can submit a change to a project and potentially have that accepted. And so it's it gives us uh, this sense of, like, agency over the world that is built around us, um, which I think, you know, there's still some truth to that sentiment. Um, the flip side is what happens when, like, hard things happen in a project, for example, governance conflicts. Um, And so I cited a few different examples in the book, uh, situations where maybe like the maintainer has said something that other people don't agree with, or there's, yeah, just sort of like, um, maybe like ideological conflicts, um, where suddenly that maintainer is dealing with an influx of like tons and tons of outsiders coming in and and sort of like weaponizing this rhetoric now against them where they say, open source is supposed to be a place for anyone to contribute. I don't feel comfortable contributing to this project because you hold so-and-so views and, and using that to sort of like leverage, like, this is why we need to kind of like, you know, flood in here and, um, and tell this maintainer what, what we think should happen or like oust them or whatever. Um, And so it, it really like goes against, I guess, a lot of these, even these same principles that people are referring to around like how to build healthy communities, which um, I also kind of cite in the book of, Referring to say like Eleanor Ostrom, who uh, was a Nobel Prize-winning um, economist who looked at the like how um, commonses or like you know small self-managing communities um, organize themselves successfully, and uh, one of the things that she consistently points to in um, in her work is the importance of knowing your membership boundaries and being able to sort of define like who is actually in charge here? I'd like who, yeah, who, who has agency to sort of like make these kinds of governance-related decisions? Um, and, and so that stands really in conflict with the idea that like anyone can kind of come in and say like, we're now deciding what your community is doing. And, uh, and so I think like we, we can really see that stuff happen in open source more so I think than maybe other online communities, um, partly because open source really has this like utility function that maybe like other online communities, uh, it's not quite as obvious. And so like a lot of these open source projects are what we're using to run like all of our software that all of us are relying on. And so it's, um, I understand the other side of it as well, where it's like, you know, if I don't feel comfortable contributing to this project, it's also saying that somehow like I'm not able to participate in something that, um, that might like personally affect me. If I'm a developer relying on this code and I don't feel comfortable contributing back to it, then like now, like. I I now like my agency is also diminished. And so uh, it really creates these just like very interesting conflicts where maybe with like an online community might say, all right, I'm going to go start my own over here. And that does happen in open source where um, projects will kind of like splinter off and try to start like a competing version. And, uh, but then you're still, I guess, competing for like, which one is the standard project that people are going to use. Um, But yeah, I think there's just sort of like this interesting logical puzzle of um, on the one hand, we say that healthy communities require having these sort of like clearly defined membership boundaries in order to be able to like, know like, who is like, you know, voting or making a decision on something. We can't just have like, you know, everyone in the world uh, voting on it, or the, uh, or the decision loses its meaning. Um, but on the other hand, like, that can come into conflict with the idea of, um, of, of like, open and participatory inter- internet.
0: Yeah, I, w- I want to get to democracy in, in a couple minutes. But, but, but first, you, you quote Kevin Sistrom in the book, quoting him, social media is in a pre-Newtonian moment where we all understand that it works, but, but not how it works. What precisely do you mean there in terms of like, what would it mean for us to, to, to know how it works? And is it just time such that we see enough experiments play out? Or h- how do you sort of think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess we are still in the um, like bottoms up kind of approach to understanding how it works right now. The sort of like apple falling on our head. Um, and then like looking up and you're like, what the heck is, is going on here? Um, because I mean, it, it has just been interesting to watch, say like post-2016, where I think there has been this sort of revisiting of what the heck is social media and like how do we be a little bit more thoughtful and treating it as with the I guess like social responsibility that uh that we've all sort of been tasked with and and just like for the first couple years I felt like everyone was kind of just flying blind because it was I think there at least within tech there was a little bit of this mental shift of we're this I don't even know like entertainment or Product or uh, like a private company that you you know is is not like a government at all, and we don't have the power to influence you know major social movements or changes. And I think there's sort of like a dancing away from that responsibility to now thinking about oh gosh like we really are the infrastructure upon which all our communications are happening, and we need to take that seriously. But yeah, I think there's still this feeling of like, but like what principles or like theory do we fall back on to understand that and uh, at least Again, this is just all sort of speaking from my own experience being in tech, but I felt like there's more recently been this revisiting of interest from, um, I guess, maybe your more typical software engineer um, interest in like political philosophy or just like trying to find some sort of like fundamental thing to look back to and be like, okay, this is what helps guide how we build. Um, and so I wanted to make a contribution to that with this book because um, I think open source has a lot of just really interesting components to it that can also be kind of broken down. Um, and, and saying, okay, like here is the atomic unit of a contributor or of a maintainer. And like, can we take those same atomic units and like, you know, repurpose them to different types of online communities and, um, hoping to sort of like tease out what are some of those principles that, that we need in order to like, uh, rebuild our, our social platforms.
0: Yeah. Is there something that, that didn't make the book that, that you wanted to put in, but weren't yet set on, or is there a sort of response to the book? or a debate that the book has has contributed to that is is really compelling or interesting uh, right now, sort of within open source or more broadly?
1: I've asked this question before. I don't think I held back on anything here. I kind of like leaned into the fact that I think books are great because you, I mean, for someone to read it, they really need to like parse through a lot of stuff. Like, you know, there's a difference between buying a book and then actually reading it. And so I think I felt comfortable being like, you know, if someone is taking the time to read this book, then they have the full context for what I'm trying to say. And so I didn't really hold back on anything um, as I was, playing things out
0: yeah how about how about the response to it or is there sort of a debate within open source that your book sort of weighed in on on any capacity or how how do you sort of think about that
1: i've definitely felt some i guess silence from people who've been typically more promotional of the things that i've written um but then at the same time have like yeah i guess i haven't heard a lot of like overtly negative things um it's mostly been really positive but there is maybe some silence there. I don't mind. I think like part of like getting to the point of writing this book meant that I already I think have built up a level of context and relationships with um, a bunch of folks open source that it's not someone coming totally out left field and saying this stuff. So I think like having a little bit of that trust is is helpful. And uh, and yeah, I, th- I think it's like helped to sort of like bolster maybe like the same things that this is what I only ever want to do because like I consider myself, you know, an outsider to open source even though I spent a lot of time around it. But um, but I'm not an open source maintainer myself. And so like, my hope is, you know, it's like helping to amplify the things that people are already saying. Um, I found it a particularly gratifying moment for me was when, um, you know, Van Rossum, who um, authored Python and stepped down, I think, two years ago, uh, due to uh, as he was sort of like the BDFL, the benevolent dictator for life of Python and um, stepped down in part due to sort of like these exhausting kinds of conversations and discussions that that I, I try to cover in the book of like these things eventually wear down on maintainers, like, Gudo, and he shared out the, the book and, and uh, recommended it as a read. And that
0: was yeah. sort of
1: a, a nice validation kind of thing.
0: Totally. And and for anyone who either disagrees with it or doesn't feel like it, you know, hundred percent represents the, their, their version of the world. Is it largely because, you know, with, with love and care, you, you splash a little bit of cold water on sort of this utopian, you know, vision.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like there really is a, like, there are several defining eras of free and open source software and the first kind of being free software, uh, which is very ideologically driven. And then there was um, early open source software, which is kind of what I call it for lack of a better term. But that's all this uh, stuff that came up around like the early 2000s, late 1990s, where the term open source was coined. And, and with it came all this uh, rhetoric around the benefits of, of open source are that everyone can participate. That's sort of like what they were founded on and a lot of conversation around um, licenses and like who can access this stuff. And it's just, a, it's a lot about just sort of like distributing access to everyone. Um, but I do feel like there, then there's this like more modern era of open source, which I think of as sort of like the GitHub generation starting maybe like late 2000s or 2010s, uh, that is a little bit more interested in like convenience and just sort of like building things at work and um, having a platform that supports them and uh, and sort of, I guess, migrating away from this we care about open uh about openness as a dogma to more like i just want to do my job and do it well and um and i think like with that comes this thinking a little bit more about how do i sort of like manage this influx of like many many contributions and, and doing this at, at scale and so uh so yeah I, I think like there might be just sort of some critique that comes from like did early open source manage to Reinvent itself a little bit, but i don't I don't know. I think like you can have multiple movements that continue to exist. It's not like this is on some perfect space time continuum like there are free software activists that continue to exist, and that I respect, even though I don't think free software is like the front and center like narrative of what is happening in open source, but it doesn't mean that I think their ideas shouldn't exist or are bad. It's just like you know the the, the zeitgeist kind of like moves around, and I kind of just want to like shift that point to a a more modern kind of place
0: totally. Nadia isn't saying this because she's a very secure and happy person, but but what I'm, I.R. Tornberg, I'm saying that if you haven't tweeted about the book, your silence is deafening. <laughs> <I>
1: Thanks, <so. laughs> Eric.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so speaking of the different movements in, in open source, one of the things you sort of chronicle is that some of the leaders of the early movement weren't as uh, politically correct <laughs> or, or egalitarian as uh, as ones in sort of you know today and part of it is the, is the time is shifting is, is times are, are changing H- how has that besides just sort of the personality of it how has that influenced sort of the the substance of, of the underlying work itself if at all
1: uh just sort of like comparing how it was then to how
0: it is now yeah, the, yeah the fact that you like Richard Stallman and um yeah. Adele, other couple ones that you chronicle as sort of the leaders and the faces of it um, like it's equivalent of like you know when Steve Jobs is the face of an industry ver- like i don't know is there, some of these industry, is there a different type of person who goes into it or is there a different does the underlying like work change in, in some way or is it mostly sort of aesthetic um in a way that doesn't yeah. affect like, the core
1: well so i do think the like earliest days of free and open source software were they were really characterized by these strong personalities some of the names which you referenced and i don't think we like once necessarily like i mean some of those personalities are pretty extreme and it's the same thing like you said with like a steve jobs type where some people will say oh that's you know a little bit extreme and we don't really want to show that kind of leadership and other people will say yeah but having those kinds of controversial figures that like put a stake in the ground can also just serve as these rallying points and so i guess like for better or for worse the observation on my end is that um is that very the very early days of, of open source really benefited from having that kind of very strong leadership and then i felt like um with this sort of shift to saying. You know, open source is kind of for everyone, and it's uh, trying to just make it extremely welcoming for um, all types of contributors and acknowledging everyone's contribution. A little bit more of that, like egalitarian philosophy. Then I feel like we kind of like lost leadership, and just and there wasn't really any face that emerged. And maybe part of that comes from this reluctance of anyone to like come forth and say and and just say like, you know, I care about this thing because I think um, the general sentiment was if you're a maintainer or, you know, like a leader that, uh, that is beating your chest a little too much, that's seen as sort of like not in the best interest of open source. We don't want these super strong cults of personality. We just want to, we want to focus on the collective. Um, and yeah, I do think it like, it ended up, um, well, maybe that was like a necessary sort of like reaction, I guess, against the early days. And maybe now we're, we can swing back in another direction and we'll just kind of go back and forth for the end of time. Um, I, I do think like it had some detrimental effects in sort of yeah, just, just not acknowledging the agency of maintainers to be able to control their own communities and to be able to lay down the rules that they believe in. And yeah, having like tons of people coming in and making these low quality contributions and you have to spend your time as a maintainer, like going through each one and acknowledging them and thanking them for it because otherwise you're seen as being rude. I think um, I think any great idea or movement just like benefits from having some <laughs> very strong personalities in the room and I don't think that means that you have to be this angry abusive leader like I think there are a lot of different ways to be a, um, a compelling leader so I'm not yeah I don't I don't think we have to go back to the days of you know early Linus Torvalds or something but um, but yeah I do think it's currently missing a little bit of that face like the only face I can really put to it right now is GitHub which is a platform um, but I would, yeah, I would love to just see maybe more of that shift happening back towards, um, maintainers being recognized as for the amazing work that they're doing.
0: Yeah. I, um, I, I couldn't see Steve jobs in the, in the same way, um, sort of be a, um, you know, get away with it in, in, in 2020 in the same way. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if, uh, if you've Michael Jordan documentary at all, but I, I couldn't see Michael Jordan similarly, or even Kobe Bryant get, get away with sort of his, his sort of, um, just at just like win it all costs attitude, like greatness over, Every everything else. Does that resonate with you?
1: Definitely. I think that's what I sort of want to be quietly more firm about, even in the way that I carry myself day to day at work with friends. Um, and then also with this book where I, I just like, I know myself, I'm the, I'm not going to be the type that is going to be angrily beating people over the head with <laughs> any sort of thing. And that's probably to my own detriment of, um, I don't know, I just, I, I like to see the nuance and things. Um, but I, do know what I stand for and uh, and kind of want to model that behavior that I want to see in the world and so even though I'm not going to be the angry CEO stalking the stage and kind of like yelling at people or whatever like I do want to just sort of like quietly affirm at least that that yeah like I mean it's I don't know it just I feel like it kind of just makes the world less interesting when there aren't like interesting people to rally around to inspire you like you might not agree with everything they say but um, there is the underlying kind of focus on like greatness at all costs I think there's just there is something nice there about working really hard and um, sacrificing to do something that you really believe in in the world, and I don't resonate as much with the idea that like it's up to me to then kind of find like where does my own life balance lie for that. But I would rather be striving for like excellence and perfection and then like figuring out where my like natural balance lies than to like not even have anything to aspire to at all.
0: Yeah, are, are those two books in your bookshelf right behind you? Uh, is that Nietzsche and Ayn Rand?
1: No comment.
0: I'm just kidding. We're, we're, we're on audio. We'll, we'll get back to this. I, I want to go to democracy a little bit. So it, it, it's interesting. It, it seems that, We've sort of had this religious belief in in, in democracy. In our last episode, we were talking about uh, Fukuyama's sort of end of history um, and how how sort of it was thought that that was sort of the Western liberal democracy was sort of the the best system. And it was sort of above inquiry in in some capacity. And we've seen even geopolitically in say like the Middle East, um, there've been a bunch of places where where it hasn't worked according to our, our expectations. We're also, you know, in, in open source. Uh, you, you sort of bring up a, a few examples in, in crypto. There's, you know, there was all these uh, sort of ideas of innovations on governance, and people said, "Hey, this is actually really, really hard. Maybe we should just focus on like expanding ownership uh, instead." And so it's interesting. It, you can imagine sort of democracy losing its sort of like religious, you know, sacredness to it, and us actually, uh, you know, analyzing it just like monarchy, and, and, and monarchy perhaps losing its sort of religious, you know, the opposite of of, of sacredness. And um, maybe us being more open to, 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 to that form of governance and if and, and you think, you know, whether it's in private companies, whether it's in protocols, how, how do you react to this? I,
1: had a, I felt like I was kind of ping pong back and forth in my head as you were describing that, because I mean, when it comes out, I do feel like it's, you know, the, the Churchill thing of democracy is the worst form of government we have, but also uh, like the the, the, it's the best worst form of government that we have and I think that still resonates with me like I I do feel like even though maybe like my 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 team has changed a little bit over the past few years in terms of maybe how I identify politically and and things like that like I do also I don't actually feel like my values have changed that much like I know I really believe in freedom of opportunity for people and but they're like I think I just want to be more creative with how do we actually get there? And sometimes I think people want to be told what to do and they benefit from having strong leadership. Sometimes people don't want to be left to sort of just like futz around and fend for themselves. Like they want beautiful things to aspire to and they they want leaders to to aspire to please. Um, and so that can be a really good motivator. And then sometimes it is helpful to have, to have people to sort of like come up with their own ideas and throw things out there. Like I don't actually want to live in a world where like, like monarchy is seen as the best form of government because Like you kind of extend that long term and it it means that you don't get some of the best benefits of the internet in the past 20 years, which has been like people coming from out of the woodwork everywhere and um, being able to show off their own talents and prove themselves. So I think I'm, yeah, I think I'm still like very pro-democracy. I think it's just more about what is the shell that we're using or like the vehicle to sort of like, uh, make that possible. And uh, I just want to be realistic about like, when are some of our tools, maybe a little bit rusty, a little bit outdated, and we need to come up with new tools that, that accomplish those same goals better. Maybe that's a little bit nice yeah. to me, but you tell me.
0: Very Straussian. I'm just joking. Uh, the, it is interesting. Maybe in the same way that there's sort of like cycles between unbundling and fun- bundling or fragmentation and, and consolidation, there's like times to be sort of democratic and then once you've given everyone a voice okay n- now we need some order and sort of this like you balance between sort of disruption and, and order um or, or this this cycle maybe something like
1: yeah that. like they right like i think like the um the classic failing of t- democracy or even like management is something i've been thinking about is to i mean like yeah you have this experience where you tell your manager you know here are some things that i i want to do and they're like great do whatever you think is is best and yeah you know, the first reaction is oh yeah that sounds really good like this person is just trusting me to do whatever i want but i think a lot of people have had this experience at work where they're suddenly like but i actually kind of want your input like i kind of but you know i have my ideas but i also like want someone who has a vision to like tell me what to do with this information um and so yeah i think it's similar with like governments and any sort of like group thing I mean this is true for hosting a good party or like putting together a festival like events and things like that where I think there's this like the common failure mode is to say oh you know just let people do whatever they want and we'll see what emerges but if you let everyone do what they want then like chaos emerges <laughs> it's not always a good thing unless you have like, a really small controlled group with like people that have very high contacts for each other um, but yeah you actually kind of don't want that to happen because it ends up being a negative net negative experience for everyone involved um, and so, like, how do you, as the host, the manager, the leader, the whatever, um, find ways to sort of, like, gently nudge people in, into the right direction and help them be the best that they can be and, like, contribute the most that they can to, to everyone else in the group without, while also sort of recognizing, I guess, the creativity that they can bring to the table. So I, I see those problems as all being very similar.
0: Yeah. It, it, it's interesting. The um, I heard one critique of, of democracy well i'll expose a couple actually one is that it promises too much status to it it creates sort of status arms race among its sort of participants in, in a way that's really uh unhealthy and everyone is just sort of like grabbing for for power and status and crazy sort of global competitions like in i guess the one sort of counter analogy which is a little bit crude but in china like people aren't focused as much on sort of like this terrible cancer that is like you know politics um and and, and politics both in terms of like uh, election but also in terms like they just don't expect as much now of course they don't get as they don't get as <laughs> nearly as much and i prefer the america system america fuck yeah etc but in in private companies like this idea of of, of being democratic it, it like the more you expect the more you're going to be unhappy and the more it's sort of this gerardian sort of arms race to just just get more and more status and influence as opposed to when they're just very clear order, very clear hierarchy, and not to say that there is and very clear ways to like move up or move move down within that hierarchy. Um, But just the 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 idea of of expectations as relates to status, I thought was an interesting critique.
1: Yeah. I mean I think that was sort of the underlying point to Fukuyama's thesis around end of history is like there is no end of history because we are always going to be um yeah just seeking after like something more here. Um, It's like inherently a, a problem that is not resolvable.
0: The other critique I've heard of, uh, of, of of sort of democratic systems is that they are basically just sort of like stopping points on the way to communism. Like communism is the logical conclusion of a lot of uh, because once you sort of and not just democracy but even like libertarianism, like once you sort of concede care and fairness as a um, sort of central point, as, you know, of your of your philosophy, it, it then follows that you're, you're never caring enough. Uh, there's a, there's always sort of inequalities. There's always sort of things that can be that can be made better and once you can see those points it it will just go to this logical conclusion and my sort of broader thesis is that there's sort of two competing competing but overlapping forces between sort of like software eats the world like mark which are like markets eating the world which is sort of like capitalism uninhibited and then there's sort of egalitarianism uh, uninhibited but but markets and capitalism while, while they're really powerful they do have sort of countermeasures which is governments and the only countermeasure to egalitarianism or just like increased like leftism actually is 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 markets um, and there's this tension between making things more fair like process wise but also making things more fair distributionally and when you make things more fair process wise and, and this is what everyone uh this is why sort of you know people who are in crypto who are also like socialists are just fundamentally confused is is <laughs> you, process wise you're just gonna have radically dis- disparate uh, outcomes and and disparate, are- yeah go for it
1: why are markets the only counter to egalitarianism?
0: Well, in, in some ways they, they promote it. I'll give you an example of, this is sort of a dystopian example. I'll, I'll give you Tinder or a, da- a dating app. So yeah, before a dating app, you're limited to you know the people in your the, the bar that you go to or whatever that you'd see. And then Tinder makes it more meritocratic in theory in that, okay, now you're you're not just competing with like 10 people, you're competing with like hundreds of people. And thus you should have more efficient markets and get better matches or, or, or something like that. And the, the counter to that, is that so it, software creates meritocracies, but it also exposes them. The counter of that is that, okay, now this data is legible and you can you know, do the stats on who's getting matched and what groups of people aren't getting matched as, as much and thus sort of d- demand that Tinder like regulate the system such that there are more d- disparate out- outcomes. So sometimes it overlaps with it or even encourages it. In, in, in There's this idea that, I'll give you an example. So when you're giving a tip and you're being watched by somebody you're more likely to give a higher tip than when you're not being watched by somebody. And now we're always being watched by somebody <laughs> uh, like someone's always, wa- and so we're always virtue signaling at all times. And so the, uh, your, your original question was how does, how is it counter to egalitarianism? Uh,
1: yeah, I think I understand that better now. And so what you're saying, I think because I think yeah, the, the perspective I was coming from as you were first talking about it was the counter to egalitarianism is just sort of, benevolent dictatorship or benevolent leadership that can sort of um knock people out of that but i think like you're right that markets are still maybe like the intermediary force to sort of expose the data or the way that like things really are in the world quote unquote to even ha- like i i think like if people don't don't feel a sense of like unrest around egalitarianism then having you know leadership swaying them in another direction is not helpful because they need to like want it or they need to like see the conflict, which yeah, which is not something that just sort of like coming in and saying so is, is going to do. So that makes more sense to me.
0: Yeah. And so my thing is basically that anything that can be made into software or like be made into a market will be made into a market unless there's something actively preventing it. Um, and that's often governments. Um, and then similarly, like egalitarianism will just seep into everything unless something actively stops. And there are like pockets of, of reactionary, um, you know, anti-galitarian behavior. And, and so it's not always, like, up and to the right for egalitarianism but just, like, since Jesus, it just seems like it's been pretty hockey stick growth.
1: <laughs> since Jesus is a good flex right there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so what would Glenn Weil say if he, he read your book and was listening to, you know, the first 30 minutes of this conversation before we went off the rails? Like, because he's, you know, he would say that, like, Apple is, like, totalitarian. Like, he, he <laughs> thinks that we're just missing... Um, that companies would just be way better if they were more uh, democratic. Like, what, what, is, what does he disagree with, with you? And I'm not going to implicate myself in this. What does he disagree with you on, you think? What would Glenn say?
1: Um, it's been a little while since I've dug into Glenn's ideas, but I would say probably, so yeah, I mean, tell me what you think of this, but I think Glenn and I maybe identify similar problems, but have different solutions or approaches to it. Um, Glenn... Looking, at, I think, a little bit more at how do we sort of turn power over to a broader set of people. Um, I'm just sort of thinking about like the concept of quadratic voting and then how it really is about like leveraging, leveraging like sort of like collective interests um, in, in a way that still overcomes the problem of like one person, one vote. So I think we're like again identifying the same problem there, but um, maybe having a different like, whereas I might kind of be like. Uh, We just sort of need more people in charge to to be a little bit more decisive about what they want and communicating that. I think he's looking for ways to maybe more explicitly preserve that idea of like participation. Whereas I think I'm sort of like maybe jaded on uh, participation or, or just don't think it's always as realistic to, um, to implement. Does that resonate with you?
0: Yeah, no, that that, that does. And I, I think it's also for the participants themselves, like, participation is not going to give you what you want always. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. It, it, right. Like, or, and, and, and it depends what we mean by participation, but I, I think there's sort of like a collective, like if status is sort of this arms race, there, there needs to be like some systems that can like collectively allow us to bow out such that like we don't, we don't have to enter and, and it's like for our own good. Yeah. And social media just puts us in a constant global status game in the way that we, we never were before. You just be with your family and have a nice life.
1: Yeah. Um, I had this sort of feeling that like when we're dissatisfied by people that are in charge, it's because we don't, we just don't like the vision that is being put forth to us. But it doesn't mean that we don't like leaders, if that makes sense. Like I think a leader with a compelling enough vision and this benevolent dictator style of governance and and someone who does it really well, like ideally you should not even be thinking about like, is someone doing something in behind the scenes? Like I, I often think about like Burning Man in this way. Not to be that person making Burning Man references on a uh, yeah. podcast, but, um, but like, I mean, Burning Man is amazing in the sense that it is like, you know, so self-organized, but like people also miss that under the surface, there is a, I think they call like department of like, I don't know, whatever. They, they have like a, a, essentially like a maintenance a crew of people that are like behind the scenes making this feeling of like, wow, we built it all ourselves possible like it's not like there is some coordination happening it's just relatively invisible um and it it does and and so i think like that's an example of just a place where i i've I've seen this really nice marriage of both like I had the agency to change the things that I want to change in my day-to-day life. I can, you know, wear the costumes I want to wear. I can make my camp look the way I want it to look or things like that. But then like the underlying infrastructure of like, who's bringing like the porta potties to this place. Um, who's like defining like what our values are. Like where did the Burning Man values come from? They didn't come from some, you know, thousands of people sitting together and taking a vote on it. They came from like the vision of, a certain set of people, and um, and, and so I think like they do a good job of like I don't even realize all the things that I don't have to think about. I'm just sort of like yeah. there enjoying my time, and so that to me is like sort of like the perfect balance that I would love to see like more people be able to strike and more organizations.
0: Totally, I, I just went to my first Burning Man ever over over Zoom, and and I totally get it now. I oh like my
1: god, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I totally see what everyone who's been talking about these last you know decades. So
1: congratulations, Eric. <laughs>
0: sympathize you know relate resonate um so yeah it's interesting biology's vision and other other people's vision too is basically this idea where there's like strong leaders but just a a lot of choice and so and you could you become a leader yourself Uh, and so there's just like a a, a, just a competitive set such that you could find the find or create the perfect situation for you inclusive of a you know highly participatory in, in, in every element of there's just the challenge here of course is that you know both in companies and and uh, obviously countries that their you know power consolidates or just becomes monopolistic and it's in their instinct incentive to prevent other, others from from arising and we have some ways to to stop this at the private level with sort of you know new sort of technologies um, and protocols and then and, and the regulation uh, on a country level it's 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 way harder to even think about what would be the infrastructure that would prevent uh, you know m- monopoly monopolistic beh- behavior but it's uh, it's interesting to think about yeah uh, biology of this quote which was the east coast and west coast have a different mentality due to money east coast is like conflict of interest if you have an investment in something your word is less credible whereas the west coast is more put your money where your mouth is if, if you don't have an investment mm-hmm. in something your, your word is less less credible and then of course there's sort of this west coast east coast like media battle um is it as is it, is it simple as old money versus new money or how, how should we sort of think about east coast west coast mentality you know broadly generalized
1: yeah, I think a little bit of it is the old money versus new money thing, um, or just sort of like institutions versus new institutions, or, or, you know, something that is not old versus new, I don't know, maybe the most reductive way to say it. Um, yeah, I do often hesitate to say East Coast versus West Coast, even though it often kind of breaks down the way, but it feels like it doesn't actually include, for example, when I'm talking about philanthropy, like Gates Foundation is a huge thing, but you you could call that West Coast as much as it is East Coast. So yeah, I don't, I don't and I just, like, I don't know, I don't love falling into, like, sort of geographic kind of identity politics, I guess. But, um, but yeah, there is something to me around, again, just looking at, like, where those, like, wealth booms have happened. And, like, to me, it really just does speak to the <laughs> the value of, like, concentrated wealth and being able to engender a lot of um, cultural change. And because we can kind of, like, tie different eras of conversation and norms and um, and, and just sort of like movements to like where do those concentrations of wealth happen and so one of them is sort of more New Yorkish, and one is maybe more San Francisco-ish but yeah I, I don't I don't know what that looks like in the long term I'm still sort of watching and waiting I just all I know I guess for myself is having I mean I grew up on the east coast so I'm certainly no stranger to it and um and don't even dislike it or anything like that but Um, I've been in San Francisco for 10 years now and definitely feel like I kind of grew up and my career kind of grew up in and around tech. Um, So I feel just a strong affinity to it and um, just seeing like, I don't know, all all the enormous opportunity that's created, just not just for me, but plenty of people. I, I do just feel like when I look at stories in the media and stuff, like I don't see myself in it. I don't see my friends in it. There is this need for just sort of like cultural artifacts that can represent what is happening here. And I find it particularly more egregious that that we have done so much stuff and have had so much impact on the world, but like basically no one really knows what is going on here, and the only depictions are sort of like these caricatures that like no one here really feels represents them. Um, and so I do hope that like five or ten years from now we can look back and be like, Oh, that was kind of like goofy that <laughs> that like these like movies or like news articles were written portraying tech as sort of like a caricature, but like I'm so glad now that we have these more like I guess authentic stories that we can tell um, and so yeah, I mean that's almost not even like a tech specific thing. It's just sort of like I mean for anyone, I think if you're looking at what's happening in like mainstream media and saying like that doesn't look like me or that doesn't represent me, then like get to work, start like telling your own story in your own way. Um, I hope that's a sentiment that a lot of people can identify with, regardless of whether you take any sort of part in
0: like east versus west coast politics when, when people talk about the culture war what are they talking about? Like, how, how many sense make around the culture war? And like, have we always been in a culture war? <laughs> and and I, I just didn't know it. Like, what comes to mind when you when you hear that? How do you sense make around it?
1: All right, well, what comes to mind for me is like, for a while, and this is like, not as abridged and very subjective history that might be entirely wrong, but it's mostly just based on my own experience. So I don't know, like, take it take it as you will. Um, but my experience of this has been coming to San Francisco and saying like, oh, this is like a totally different place from like, you know, the east coast I came from. And people here are building things and they're like having impact on the world and like basically no one knows that they exist. Um, I just saw like this tweet from Paul Graham, I think today, uh, that was like a photo of the Airbnb founders giving a talk at like an early white commoner kind of dinner and holding their like, you know, McCain Captain Crunch box or whatever and saying he he was just sort of like nostalgic for like ten years ago, like no one no one out there cared at all what we were doing. And they might start using Airbnb, for example, but like just have like no idea like who the founders are or like what the deal is. And then I felt like twenty sixteen was this like sharp turning point, which is I think we're all just had a lot of whiplash over where the Democrats lost the, the presidential election and suddenly I think we're sort of like looking for someone to blame and uh Facebook kind of landed in their crosshairs. Whether that is true or not, but I think like it was probably long term beneficial for both sides in that like Facebook was sort of like shying away from from saying, yes, we are a platform and billions of people use us. But like we're you know, we don't have any influence on things like the election. And uh, and, and so that that level of like extreme dissatisfaction, I think, at like losing a battle kind of led like the outside world to start like scrutinizing tech and be like what is going on in here how are these people like able to like control these distribution channels and we just like basically didn't see them exist and i think like both sides kind of failed here because the outside world did not was just like totally underestimating and not paying attention to what was happening in tech and then the tech world was also not paying attention to how important it would be to be able to like control their narrative outside of the tech world i think like there was maybe this like naive idea that maybe like tech could and like you know the outside world could just sort of like peacefully coexist and no one would ever really pay attention to what was going on here like i don't really know what what the end game was but it seems like that was kind of like the sentiment and so now with like all this increased scrutiny now, now you're seeing like okay we all have to coexist in the same public conversation where we are being forced to kind of like play with people that might not really understand tech or maybe like very anti-tech and like how do we then shape our own narrative and uh, and and kind of take control of that a little bit so i do feel like the like culture war that you're referring to is like really only started maybe like four years ago and has been super heating up in maybe like the past two years or something like that.
0: What else happened four years ago? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, my, my bridge version is that basically Silicon Valley's t- to sort of the sort of elite establishment just became like... It, it too big for its britches a little bit in the sense of in the beginning it was this upstart it helped elect Obama it helped start this sort of um, what was it? the Twitter revolution the Arab Spring it was doing all these sort of amazing things for sort of left leftist institutions and elite institutions and then it got too close to the sun and actually started to threaten those same institutions right Netflix threatened the, the studios uh, you know Lambda and university you know uh, uh, moocs thre- threatened universities to some extent or they threatened their hegemony and Peter th- the thing around that. And then also, you know, you have BuzzFeed and Vox and sort of now they're sort of considered old media, but you have these new, you know, Silicon Valley upstarts that are disrupting uh, old East Coast media institutions. And I, I'm actually, it's funny, we're seeing like this now this alliance between sort of East Coast media defects uh, and, and technologists and Silicon Valley in an interesting way. But it, yeah, basically, just got too powerful. And then Trump was just the sort of like you need to scapegoat around that. And so as it got too powerful, it was no longer an ally to these elitist institutions, and now is a enemy.
1: Yeah, I think some of that maybe resonates of this is what what happens. Kind of go back to what we were saying before of like any new institution as it's being created is always going to end up threatening whatever came before it. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't. I sort of like maybe depersonalize it a little bit more than that. But yeah, at some point when other people start getting power that aren't you, then you're going to start wanting to like check them on that power, basically. Which to me is actually just a sign of text-growing influence, so I don't think it's even a long-term bad thing. They're just sort of like inevitable scuffles that have to be
0: resolved. Totally. What's the narrative that Silicon Valley needs to tell, you think, or needs to get better at at telling? Um, you know, some people alternate between sort of the progress studies stuff versus more like transhumanism stuff versus like other... Like, what, what do you think is sort of the, the narratives that we should, we should be telling?
1: Hmm. I mean, so many things. One place I think I would start, since it seems to be sort of like all-consuming for people outside of tech is just sort of like I guess like the quote-unquote ethics of technology and um it seems like there's like a lot of the anti-tech sentiment seems to come from this feeling of like oh we somehow like I don't know like created these things that are like bad for the world I I mean it's to me it is honestly not that different from like the oil barons of, of yore that like yeah oil did a lot of things that are bad for the world but also there are a lot of great things that came out of that And so, yeah, I think, like, maybe, like, just sort of, that's a place where I would like to see just more, like, more of our own, like, real personality and DNA being injected into that conversation, where I don't, I don't think, like, all the technology we've created here is, like, necessarily bad. It just needs to be understood better. And yeah, like, what does that, it's not like we're selling, like, to me, it's not like we're selling cigarettes. Like, I think there's, some, there's a, an argument to be made that like a lot of this stuff is good and like it just needs to be understood and like shaped. Um, I, I see that as an opportunity, not as like a horrible thing that has been put into the world. Um, call me. <laughs> it's weird that that is maybe such a strange or controversial thing to say, but like I love tech. Oh, I'm happy to be here and I'm really proud of like the things that like Silicon Valley has managed to build. Um, so like, I think I just like taking some pride in that. And um, and then like maybe another aspect that's, is is, is so much I think of the conversation still centers around like startups and venture capital and like getting rich and stuff. And like, yeah, to me that is like a part of the story of tech and why people come here, but there's so many more characters. Like to me tech is just this very richly textured landscape of different characters, motives, um, just ways of connecting to this topic that aren't really being seen or represented um, in, in mainstream media.
0: Yeah. I would love to see, someone who's as good at writing as Anna Wiener is write that story because I I feel like her is just kind of yeah sort of the normal trope like anti-tropes that sort of raise one's own status to to make it's a it's a good book not to not to put it down Uh, the um I'll I'll end on this you you reimagined your your PhD I effectively did it um and you wrote a book about it You, you did it sort of DIY style you know Kanye West just tweeted out yesterday like we need a YC for the music industry is it sort of like YC for, for everything. How do you sort of think about like when you think about the future of grad, grad school based on your own experience and, and what you see, what does it look like?
1: The lazy guess would be probably what's happening to all sort of institutions unbundling right now. Um, well, I guess I'll make the argument for and against like one just being like we are moving down to these sort of like atomized creators, and so... Uh, Yeah, like I'm very optimistic and I really encourage other people to also like if you have an area of study that you find interesting and you don't think that there is like coursework in a university that is going to help you get there, which is how I felt about open source. Like I didn't feel like learning from academics was going to like help me understand open source better. I thought talking to software developers was going to help. And so like that's sort of why I structured it the way I did. And I think like a lot of people have topics like that where you're just like I'm weirdly obsessed with this thing and I want to go like understand it better. Like you don't have to go to grad school to do that. Um, And so, yeah, I think we'll hopefully be seeing just more people with the rise, I think, of just sort of like subscription businesses that are supporting creators more broadly, like um, Substack, where I I work, where, uh, yeah, you can like, you know, start a newsletter and just like, and start making money off of paid subscriptions. Like, I think that kind of stuff can fuel more people to pursue their own independent areas of study. Um, The flip side is like, I think maybe we'll do that for a while. Like we're still in that like unbundling phase and then we'll be like unbundled for a bit. But then at some point there will probably be some like, reorganizing that will happen like i do think the benefit to um universities is that you can it's like the only sort of like stable legible career path to knowledge work um at least like at its best it can be that and i think that's a really amazing thing too like right now if you want to pursue an independent area study you have to basically be uh you know have enough savings to be able to do it or kind of luck into different situations like i did that we can find people to kind of like help you pay your bills Um, and so i do hope that somewhere down the line whether it's through universities or some other sort of institution that, um, we're able to actually provide a more stable path for people that want to pursue this kind of work, um, and, and not constantly have to sort of like grovel for gigs the way, like, I felt like I kind of still do.
0: Totally. I I think that's a great, great place to wrap. The, uh, my guest has been Nadia Ekball. The book is working in public, uh, recommend reading it, uh, read uh, Nadia's, uh, newsletter on, on Substack. Create your own Substack. Nadia, Nadia runs Writer Experience Substack. Uh, Nadia, thanks for coming back on the podcast. This, this has been a great episode. Thank you, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.